0: By the end of the war, I think the Americans had supplied over 400,000 Studebaker trucks, for instance, to the Soviets. That makes all your armies motorised. I mean, the Red Army was a motorised army thanks to American mass-produced engineering, which doesn't really get discussed in Russia much nowadays. It can't be denied. It's not just the SS. You can't commit that many atrocities on a vast military army that you're up against, but equally a vast civilian population. You can't do that just with the SS and kill millions upon millions of Soviet citizens and Soviet soldiers. That's got to be with the the complete combined strength of whatever armies you have at your disposal and the vast bulk of German forces on the Eastern Front were Wehrmacht.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast, I'm your host, Oliver Webb Carter. Now, today we're dealing with the Eastern Front during World War II and the brutality there, as you heard from my guest Ian McGregor at the top. This episode is dealing with the fighting after Stalingrad and so makes up rather a nice trilogy on the pod. So the first part, that's the Nazi-Soviet pact with Roger Morehouse. And then Ian, today's guest, talks us through Stalingrad in a previous episode too. And now the trilogy is completed with the fighting on the Eastern Front. Perhaps we'll do the advance onto Berlin too, make it a quadrilogy. Anyway, Ian's book is out now in paperback, so listeners, there is a message you need to listen to. There is an Easter egg in this podcast, but you have to listen and you'll get a nice surprise. This message from Ian and myself goes out to all of you, from wherever you're listening, be it Montreal or Manchester, Lima or London, Buenos Aires or Bognor Regis. Coming up, I've got the Film Club on Tuesday, Bloody Sunday, Paul Greengrass's film of that terrible event. Then I have Serhii Plocky on Ukraine, Peter Taylor on The Troubles, and much, much more. But until then, here's me talking to Ian McGregor on the Eastern Front. Ian McGregor, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. We're here to celebrate uh, your paperback version of the lighthouse of stalingrad so thank you for joining me thanks for having me on and so you you came on just before christmas and this was a very popular podcast of yours it's Starling, there's something about stalingrad that always attracts people isn't it isn't there
0: yeah yeah well i think it's i mean you know i was researching and writing the book way before uh events unfolded in ukraine so Yeah, I mean, that keeps, I suppose, that whole area and Russia, I suppose, front and centre of everyone's minds. Well, I haven't found any, I I thought I might do, because obviously when you're an author and you've produced a book like this and then events overtake you and you think, you know, you could argue selfishly, I suppose, you know, bugger me, what's going to happen? Now I'm, I'm literally, I've written a book that extols the virtues of the Red Army and here they are steamrollering or trying to steamroller their way into a a sovereign country next door to them Uh, but as you said i think a lot of people which has been good because that's the way i look at it as well you have to kind of park your present-day prejudices or opinions and i have lots of them you know i talk about them in my talks about how bad the russian bear is at the moment but i think you have to park that and then think well then just look at it through the prism of world war ii and it is in terms of combatants and casualties and destruction the biggest battle of uh, of or campaign i suppose of uh, of world war II. and so why wouldn't it be interesting
1: yeah absolutely and we we spoke about the battle itself last time and i guess it's it's this sort of pivotal moment because we're going to talk about the aftermath and basically in the eastern front um post stalingrad and I just like you were just talking about how you've written this book about the the mighty Russian bear against the Germans, the Nazis at Stalingrad, and obviously we've had the invasion of Ukraine, like you've like you've mentioned. Have you found it? Have you had any sort of difficult questions in any of your talks from people who are sort of uh, might say, "Oh well, you know the 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 Russians, uh, the Russian army is is repeating what it's been doing for centuries." as it did during in the Eastern front and um, and earlier in the Ukraine. And so, well, generally, no,
0: because uh, I'm at pains when I do my presentations and talk, well, presentations at literary festivals. And then I do a lot of talks to schools and colleges. I mean, I primarily do that, actually, because I find them really worthwhile. And I hope the students do, too. But what I I've got a good PowerPoint and I've got lots of, Uh, photographic evidence and maps and everything else but what I'm at pains to talk to them about really is and I just made the mistake right at the beginning is is call it the Russian army and it's obviously the Soviet Red Army which is comprised you know there's millions and millions of men and women served and fought and died in it and they all came from the 15 Soviet republics that were there at the time and what's the 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 irony, because of what's happening right now, is the the biggest ethnic group outside of Russians that served in the Red Army were Ukrainians. So millions of Ukrainians served, fought, and died, wounded, whatever, uh, in the Red Army. Uh, I mean, a great many of them fought on the the, the Axis side as well. Yeah, whatever. what were the
1: numbers I mean, of, of on both sides roughly? Well,
0: oh, that's a good question. I, it's it's well over four to five million served in the Red Army, or served in partisan forces fighting behind the German front line. And of that, the Ukrainians who did fight in the Red Army suffered more casualties in terms of dead and wounded than uh, the forces of Britain, France and the USA combined. So that's well over a million dead. And so that's obviously something massive, you know, you've got to take that into context. But yeah, on the other side, well over a million fought for the Germans. But like I said, they were, I would argue, potentially it was obviously an anti-Soviet, anti-communist element that fought there and served in the various, you know, concentration camp archipelago. That the Germans are set up, you get a lot of Ukrainian guards working there as well so that, yeah you you could argue there was, there was a split but 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 the dominant feature is that ukrainians fought for the red army and suffered enormous casualties and the bulk of the fighting is you know there's a there's a great deal of it on russian soil but there's a great deal of it across UK- the whole of ukraine and belarusia as well so that that's where the real as as uh, it's been called before the bloodlands of the eastern front that's where it is really and this incursion down into southern russia which culminated at Stalingrad. That was the big attack into southern Russia, but the bulk of the fighting would be done before and after in, in the lands spanning across the, the Donbass of the Ukraine and Belarus.
1: So, right. Well, we, we, Stalingrad is over. The Germans have had to surrender. And so when that happened, what was the impact on the, the German army? Um, w- did that, was it then inevitable that the various army groups would be going into reverse?
0: Well, they fought
1: hard for for weeks and months
0: after army, the sixth Army was surrounded at stalingrad and the 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 the, the focus of i suppose the German high command and Adolf Hitler was they had to stabilize the line because they've got they, they haven't just got the sixth army uh, I was going to say entombed, uh, but surrounded around not just the city itself, but obviously the Stalingrad front is, is hundreds of kilometres in circumference. It's, it's, I mean, that's why it was a front. That's why there's various Soviet armies surrounding the 6th Army. So you've got over 300,000 men uh, with all the material that they need tracked along this line. It's, this pocket's increasingly shrinking as the weeks go on. Uh, which was culminate obviously, in their surrender at the end of January, 43. But equally, you've still got a vast number of Axis troops, predominantly German, that have pushed, that had pushed, at the same time they were pushing towards the Volga in the east. The whole the whole point of the campaign, uh, Case Blau, was to capture the Soviet oil fields in Mykop and Grozny down in the Caucasus. They're still, they were still down there. They'd been stymied. They've been their attack had been blunted. Hence by August, September, that's when the, the main focus Hitler had, had that he needed something from Case Blau, the summer offensive, to justify the, the expenditure in men and material. So it's all eyes turned to Stalingrad and we're going to capture Stalin City. But you've still got hundreds of thousands of troops with all their support, logistics, the Luftwaffe, et cetera, down in the Caucasus, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the south of Stalingrad. The Soviets, obviously, it's in their interest to think, right, well, let's not just surround the Sixth Army at, at Stalingrad on the Stalingrad front. We need we need, we need, need now to push even further westwards, retake these transportation hubs further west, like Rostov and Voronezh, that the Germans had taken at the beginning of the summer, because they are the gateways. They're the door that opens up the Caucasus. And Zhukov, Georgi Zhukov, who was commanding all forces in that area, knew that, If they could, if they could not only trap the Sixth Army, but then push further westwards, capture those transportation hubs, it closes the door on those huge number of German troops, Axis troops that are still down in the Caucasus. So they had to be extricated. And that leads to the argument that that Hitler had. His his grand strategy was not just one of, I suppose, obedience to his will that they'd got so far east and captured pretty much all of Stalingrad. They weren't going to give it up. Yes, there was that argument. And he was stubborn enough to think we have to stay there because if we leave, we won't get back. He argued that point to his his chief of staff. But he also knew that I've got to try and get this army that's survived out of the Caucasus. And to do that, I need to tie down as many Soviet forces at Stalingrad, keep fighting, keep pushing, uh, draw in all their fresh troops. That if they're let loose, they might block my path to actually extricating my armies that are still down south. And he'd he'd got his firefighter von Manstein, Eric von Manstein. He was his his I suppose his Rommel of the Eastern Front. He was his
1: favourite. He was the guy that, that promised he could deliver. He's uh, always he's mentioned. Made, is, he, sorry to interrupt. He's always no, mentioned sure. this sort of uh, the kind of him and Rommel and Guderian as sort of the top three. German generals how, how good was Manstein?
0: Oh I think he was, he was very very good
1: but equally as you
0: had to be and more so, so I would argue than someone like say Rommel Manstein was a politician as well he knew how to uh, he was ambitious like you had again you had to be to get ahead of the upper echelons of German high command yeah but he was a talented commander uh, he was innovative he really saw like quite a few seasoned senior German commanders, how motorised formations could get you what quickly what you wanted, even though he was a product of the Great War. So, yeah, he's like Guderian, he's like Rommel. But he was, I would argue, more so than Rommel in North Africa. He was a winner on the Eastern Front. So before Case Blau had started that summer, he'd already laid waste to the Crimea. he captured what was seen as a really tough nut to crack the uh, the forts of the port of Sevastopol, which he captured with his 11th Army. So he would have been on the, as you're, as you're looking at the map, he was on the, the, the I'm left I'm looking at flag. one right now. Yeah. I recommend so listeners he, do as well. So
1: it, it had been his job to subdue
0: the Crimea, capture it, and so that eased the pressure on any kind of surprise attack that the, the German Army Group South might have. on on its right flank as it was heading down into the Caucasus, and he'd done that very well. So he was one of those kind of generals that told Hitler to a degree what he wanted to hear, but if he had to, and it was advantageous to him personally, as in furthering his career, he wasn't shy of, of obviously telling Hitler some home truths as well. So it was him that was given the job as, like I said, this firefighter that was... Told to get down to the Caucasus, assess the position, see what we can do to extricate the whole armies that we've got down there. Uh, whilst it's all obviously still the, the bit of fighting going on in Stalingrad, he was given a promotion. He was now in. They, they created a whole new army group from a uh, uh, army group Don, but his main job was to extricate German forces deep in the Caucasus, get them back up to the west and north of Stalingrad, where Sixth Army was doomed, just buying time through its own blood, and, and then stabilised the whole line. Uh, because at this point, Hitler still believed, uh, yes, that yes, he might have lost the Sixth Army, but he's still believing that there's no way they were going to be catastrophically defeated on the Eastern Front, especially while he had an intact army in the south that Manstein was going to extricate and then solidify the line. And that's that's what they
1: did. They attempt to push out, though, don't they? As well, I mean, this in the summer of forty-three, so after Stalingrad, and that's where we well, get these huge tank battles. Yeah, well, again, I'm probably it, skipping around. So we are a bit. No, what, what I was going to say was it was the whole.
0: You, you've got to remember that there's three key things to remember, and I'm saying this because it gets to your point that you just asked is in the first year of, of forty-one when you have Operation Barbarossa and Hitler's trying to capture Moscow. That whole operation was would, would have resulted, if they'd won Hitler, then he wins the war on the East on his own terms. But now we've just had Stalingrad, where they've had a catastrophic defeat for the Sixth Army. Everyone sees that, and I agree with them. Hitler's going to lose the war, but it's a question now, really, of how badly will he lose the war? And can he actually try and draw some kind of, uh, I suppose, strategic draw from what is now a catastrophe on the eastern front obviously the allies still aren't in in western front well not on the continent the european continent just yet d-day's still another year and a half away but then as you're talking about the the pivotal point is what's going to happen in the spring and summer of 1943 and what's hitler going to do now and that's where we end up with uh the the greatest tank battle in history the battle of kursk but uh, do you
1: mean, just, just to pick up on what you were just saying there, if the Germans had decided to, I mean, it's such a huge front, but if they decided to set up more defensively, are you saying that there's a potential that some kind of agreement could have been met with the Soviets that they would? But-
0: uh, uh, how long's a piece of string? I mean, it's just yeah. my opinion. It's a what if, shot, you,
1: yes. You'll have lots of
0: listeners spluttering on their tea listening to this. And what is he talking about? It's just my opinion. Was, if he was never going to, Hitler was never going to agree to having a defensive war on the Eastern Front. He was in it to win it. It was all or nothing with him, but it still didn't mean he didn't have the common sense to think, I still need, you know, he's, he's aware of how many men he's losing along the whole front. He'd learned, you know, he'd seen the the losses they'd had the year before. He still, he knows he needs fresh troops. He needs existing healthy troops that he can escape from the Caucasus to fight his war with whatever equipment they can save. He needs time to rebuild his forces. But, yeah, one could argue that he always had, in the back of his mind, probably driving a lot of his decision-making, was this racial opinion of the enemy he had in front of him. He always assumed... That the Soviets were inferior in every sense of the word, even though he had a lot of his senior commanders saying, look at the equipment they're producing. This, this tank we've encountered, the t 34 if they mass produce that, that could win the war for them. They're out producing us in every facet in terms of planes, tanks, artillery equipment. And even though he's being shown all these statistics from his intelligence chiefs, from his chief of staff, Zeitzler, He refuses to believe it. He just can't believe that they would be able to do this. And that plays itself out on the battlefield too. He just didn't believe that they had the nows, the ability, the sheer numbers of men after the losses that they had over the last two years of war, that they would be able to still hammer away, outthink, outfight the German army. He just didn't see it coming. And so that's what leads to, what is probably the the third and the, the and the real nail in the coffin at Kursk in forty three, where his localized offensive to steady the line gets
1: absolutely repulsed badly. And it's at the Kursk. The numbers are just mind boggling on the number of tanks on the German side, over three thousand tanks, I think. But yeah, out, and, outnumbered by by the Soviets. But again, that that is. Hitler not
0: believing that the Soviets could produce so much equipment. They obviously had an Allied Lend-Lease supplying them too. So there's, I mean, by the end of the war, I think the Americans had supplied over 400,000 Studebaker trucks, for instance, to the Soviets. I mean, that that makes all your armies motorised. I mean, the Red Army was a motorised army, thanks to American mass-produced engineering, which doesn't really get discussed in Russia much nowadays. (laughs) But... uh, so you've got that. And yeah, he he just didn't believe that, like he had done the year, the year before with Stalingrad, he hadn't, he just didn't believe that they, with the losses that he was seeing on paper in the, you know, we, we're talking millions of troops either killed or captured by the Germans over the last two years. I mean, again, as I say in the book, the Red Army was rebuilt five whole times in the course of the Second World War. That's, how much catastrophic losses they suffered in terms of dead and wounded. So Hitler on the other side seeing a lot of this by 43 thinking, well, how can they keep, they can't, they can't be just producing tank army after tank army after tank army, and that's exactly what they were doing. But equally, as you and I both know as well, that the Soviets were now armed with high-grade intelligence from the Allies, particularly at Bletchley Park. Giving him a really good, accurate outline of what the Germans were up to in terms of strategically where they were moving their fresh formations to, what was likely going to be the next offensive, mini offensive on the Eastern Front in the summer of '43. They they'd already successfully turned back the previous two years of offensives. Now, what they, were they going to do? And that's what you know. That that that's the key thing. It's a refusal to be, believe reality from Adolf Hitler coming up against the reality of what the Soviets could now do once they'd spent a year and a half to two years learning the German way of Blitzkrieg and then giving it back to the Germans themselves.
1: And so at the Kursk, this this battle that I, I, it sort of rages for a month, doesn't it? And it's just, when you say it's the largest tank battle of the war i mean it's probably largest tank battle ever actually isn't it yes it is by and some
0: way i mean by uh, especially in the constricted area it was in i mean like i said this uh, it's the salient it was a salient that uh, stuck into by about 50 to 60 kilometers into the, the the german lines which they had obviously they were now solidifying this line still is over 1,500 kilometres long. It stretches from uh, the edge of the Caucasus all the way up to Leningrad uh, by the Baltic. It's a long line to defend. And sticking into this in the south by Kursk was this blot of land that obviously Hitler thought they could pinch off. It was a classic target for them to, to try what they'd worked before the year before. And in Barbarossa in '41, where you... You pinch off the flanks of the enemy, cut through them with armoured formations, and then you bottle up the masses of troops and logistical equipment that are trapped in that area. And then you're going to reduce them by aerial bombardment, artillery bombardment, until you end up bagging three, four, five hundred thousand troops, which had happened before. This is what they thought CUS would
1: be. And if they succeeded then, what would have that resulted in? How big a defeat would that have been for the Soviets? Because presumably they had, I'm assuming they had limitless supplies of men to throw in. Well, they did.
0: Exactly, they did. It's it's hard to think what, other than stabilising the line, and then in Hitler's mind, which by this time was obviously fueled by some fantasy, was what would they do again to, what were they possibly going to try and repeat that had failed the year before when they tried to get into the Caucasus? They had way less men, way less equipment. They knew what kind of vast tracts of land was involved in trying to capture it. Had worked before, how would it work again? I think he pretty much, because there was, you've got to remember, which I hadn't talked about before, but I do in the book, is there was a, a price to pay from the German people about what had happened at the disaster of Stalingrad. The regime, it wasn't going to topple, but there'd been heavy criticism at home about the surprise the public had had about this this defeat that was suddenly announced. The German state propaganda had kept a lid on the disaster that was going to happen in Stalingrad. So once the Sixth Army was surrounded, very little official news had been said about what was going on. And it was only right towards the end where, A, you've got German news outlets saying that the Sixth Army is surrounded, it's fighting heroically. Uh, but then you've got this this almost like fantastical storyline that was invented by the Nazi leadership, and really, someone like Goering really went to town in radio broadcasts about it, about these German troops that were getting destroyed at Stalingrad. It was like the Spartans at Thermopylae, and the German nation should be proud of these heroes because they're laying down their lives for the, the greater good of the Nazi regime. Blah blah blah. But you've still got over three hundred thousand to half a million. German families are thinking, where's where's my loved one gone? And that was the kind of reaction you were getting that the regime was getting from the German nation. And equally, while all this is going on, the country still being bombed from the air by the Allies, which started to really take effect now. So there's a lot of negativity. So I would imagine that the German army on the Eastern Front is not in a position to try and take Leningrad in the north. They're certainly not in a position to win strategic victories in the center where you've got, again, it's a, it's a different episode on the podcast, but you could talk yeah. about the uh, situation on uh, at Rzhev, which is called The Meat Grinder. There's a great book by uh, Prit Putar about that. That involved millions of men as well. That's a huge area. And that's the thing is Russia. It's just so monumentally huge. Just in the center, there's this enormous gargantuan battle going on and in for about 18 months of who's going to, have strategic overview of there, And in the South, if you look at this little piece of land around Kursk that's sticking out, probably if you're, hit, you're thinking that's an easy win and we can have a localised victory, we still might bag hundreds of thousands of POWs and it might just be the shock the Soviets need that buys us even more time to solidify the line. I think that's what they were thinking of. I suppose it's generals on the ground that were given the task of doing it. They believed to a degree that they they probably would be able to have this local victory. Uh, they they certainly had the equipment. So obviously they've still got their Panzer 3s, but they've got their Panzer 4s. They've got the the Tiger tanks coming online, the Panther, the new Panther tank, which was going to be this this uh, kind of riposte to the T-34. That's coming yeah, online. Yeah, so,
1: so you mentioned these tanks. I always get a bit interested in this. The Tiger tank I always thought was... Yeah, but this is Tiger One. It's not. We're not at Tiger Two stage yet. Yeah, obviously. yeah. It's not the King Tiger, no. No. So this is. So I always thought it's the best tank of the war, but that's not quite right, is it? It is the no, team. no,
0: no, not at all. No, well,
1: I'm the right, Russian one, but,
0: isn't it? I mean, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In, in terms of design, ease of manufacture, uh, as in how quickly you can man- manufacture that, which is why the Soviets succeeded. They could very simple design. They kept everything basic. All the finishes were basic. It wasn't like the Germans were this over-engineered behemoth, which is fantastic. And I, I love the Tiger and I love the Panther, but the T-34 was the tank of the Second World War. I mean, it was, hands down. I mean, that's that's just the truth. Not the uh, Churchill. And then I love the Churchill, but um, it's T-34 every time for me. Yes. But also what we were just saying is, you know, by curse, yes, the Germans had the Tiger One. Bigger tank, more armour, bigger gun, uh, the 88 and the Panther 2 is the same. But equally, the Soviets had up guns, their T-34. And so by Kursk, you've got the t 3485 which has an 85mm gun. The previous mass-produced T-34 was a 76 millimeter gun, which is more than a match for the Panzer III and the Panzer IV. But the t 3485 again, was a game-changer. And they were mass producing those as well. The bulk of the Soviet army you see after Kursk that's heading west through Poland and into Germany. A lot of that is 485 because it's just a very, very superior tank, scary tank. And it was easy to make. So, again, that's that's what we're looking at here. That's what Hitler underestimated was how quickly the Soviets could replace their staggering losses in men, but equally in terms of armour and in aircraft. By then, by curse, the, the Russian Air Force had almost been rebuilt. It was obviously full of green pilots to a large degree, because the original the Air Force had been destroyed in the first year of fighting. But by 43, it was it was in good shape, and, and they were bringing on lots of really, really good planes. Like, again, one of my favourites, and I'm, I'm not biased towards Russians, but You know, the the Sturmovic armoured ground attack plane, amazing. And they caused havoc at Kursk.
1: Was it then the the Soviet equipment that really made the difference? Because there's some great generals on the German side, aren't there? There's Guderian. Isn't Guderian flown out to to help? Yeah, yeah, there's there's one. Kleist. uh, Yeah, I mean, they've got
0: the men. I mean, they they think they've got the men, the fresh troops and the armour to do the job. And they've got the Luftwaffe supporting them. These were guys that had already... Yes, they'd had a disaster at Stalingrad, but these guys still remember that when it, it came to the summer, summer campaigning, they'd always held the day. They'd always pushed forward, taken on the enemy, usual tactics, engage at the front, cut through the lines quickly, pour in the armored formations, cut them at the back, encircle and destroy them or capture them. That had worked. It worked two summers in a row. They were expecting the same thing to happen in a more localized area, not on the grand front as it had been before, but they thought this will work again. They just weren't expecting the kind of forces that they would come up against, but equally, they had no idea that the Soviets knew exactly what they were going to do. And that came from the intelligence that they gathered themselves, but also what the Allies were giving them to. They knew down to team, you know, what formations were up, there, were up against them, what kind of tanks they were going to have, possibly how, how many troops they were going to be facing. And that led Zhukov to make sure that he planned in detail how he was going to structure his defensive works. And that's, that's what, you know, definitely Soviet generalship, German generalship was probably quite even by then, as was the performance of the troops. It's just a case of that, the germans weren't expecting the kind of defensive works that the soviets put in place primarily because they knew the germans would attack them they had time to plan
1: this battle which as we know is a, a great victory for the soviets that's that's it after that i mean that's the last almost the last throw of the dice on the eastern front for the for the germans wasn't it well i was going to say in terms of offense offensive yes i think because it goes on for another, I don't know when they hit uh, German territory, is it? Uh, well, it's about another 20 months, 44. 20 months. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, it's another 20 months until they're in Berlin. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there was still a lot of fighting to do. And, yeah. you yeah. know, the Germans would conduct a decent withdrawal once they, again, it's, it's another episode. But then, you know, 44, that's when the Soviet sledgehammer really hits them across the whole front in the centre. And you've got Operation Progression and that destroys German Army Group centre. And that, that's the biggest catastrophe for the, the German and Axis armies on the eastern front is then just purely from the numbers of men and material they lose in one fell swoop. And by then, 44 as well, the Soviet forces are, are even in a better position in terms of being motorised. That's what gets them to Berlin so quickly. But in, in 43, yeah, I mean, again, the Germans, as I said, they weren't expecting the, the, the defensive intricacy that Zhukov put up against them, you know, belts of defensive works stretching for, you know, 10, 20, 30 kilometres, millions of mines laid to draw the panzers or armoured formations into lanes of killing zones that they could take them out. Tens of thousands of, of Soviet troops trained with anti-tank rifles and booby traps to take on the tanks like that were right in front of them. I mean, the, 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 the Germans' forces... You could argue, yes, they've walked into a very sophisticated giant trap, but they still managed to bludgeon their way through from the north and from the south because it was pincers coming from those directions. They still managed to bludgeon their way through. It just got blunted after, as you said, after two to three weeks of fighting. They're exhausted. They, they even though they they believe they're you know they're they're winning, but it's really probably the toughest fighting German forces have had on the Eastern Front was at Kursk in that very small area and they just ground to a halt they thought they could call it off on their terms as in we can't get any further we're just going to have to rest and try and rebuild and solidify the lines again hitler and his commanders underestimated the fact that even though they've destroyed hundreds if not thousands of soviet tanks killed hundreds of thousands and captured hundreds of thousands of soviet troops they can't they can't stop the campaign on their own terms and the soviets hit them with their own counter-offensive that's even bigger than the troops that they've been, the Germans have been fighting against for the past month. And that, that's what did the damage
1: too. The Soviets had completely learned from the previous two summers that they knew what the, the, the way, the modus operandi of the German army was to attack like you described. So they didn't then build up this amazing defensive structure.
0: At Kursk, that's a very specific operation, defensive operation for the Soviets that they deliberately did because they knew the Germans were going to attack them. And that's purely from the intelligence that they had at their disposal, uh, which we helped with, obviously.
1: Bletchley Park really can't be underestimated how important it was at the Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, from a, a
0: myriad of other sources too, by then Stalin believed what he was being sent, because you've got to remember, I mean, Britain had been telling Stalin before Operation Barbarossa about German troop movements and what he could expect in terms of what the Germans were up to. They, they, they were going to launch an offensive, against the Soviet Union in June 41. And he, he refused to believe it, he just said it's, it's a concoction by Western states to try and destabilize my relationship with Hitler. So by 43, the summer of 43, two years later, he, he's been given top quality information about what they're now planning. And he knows these are the tools that I've got that I, I can massively defeat them now at a place of their choosing, but we can now know what's coming. He knew he, he could do it. And he, it, And I was going to say, it gets back to your point just then, is the Red Army had had two years of learning their lessons the hard way. So they had been almost destroyed in Operation Barbarossa. they would rebuilt them with the summer offensive that would end at Stalingrad. Again, Stalin was taking control of a lot of the decision making at the beginning of that summer offensive. It was disastrous. They lost hundreds of thousands of men and equipment. Which allowed the Germans free reign to plunge down into the Caucasus. It was only then that he realized I've got to let my professional senior staff, like Zhukov, uh, Ros- Rosakovsky, they've got to be allowed to, to run this war for me. So that leads to where you are at Kursk, where he's allowing his general staff, the Stavka, to dictate how they're going to prosecute the war in the summer of 43. And look at what it delivers a stunning, stunning victory.
1: Now, one thing we haven't really mentioned, and it's something that whilst we were both saying how wonderful uh, General Manstein is, he was accused of plenty of war crimes. And so there were atrocities being committed throughout this period, weren't there, on the Eastern Front by the um, the Axis side. Is this something that was constant throughout, even during the retreat after the Kursk and during the advance before starting? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: On the eastern front, uh, you've got the Reichenau order, which had been given just before they they jumped off for Operation Barbarossa in June 41. And that was basically telling uh, German officers on the front that they had uh, no moral obligation to to adhere to the Geneva Convention in terms of prisoners of war, civilians, etc. This was going to be a as as we a lot of your listeners will know anyway, it's a fight to the finish. It was a it was a war driven by doctrine and racial superiority. So yeah, the Slavs are viewed
1: as undermension, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it it
0: wasn't an obligation to be taking prisoners of war. Certainly wasn't an obligation to be taken prisoners of war with any kind of political officers that they might encounter so the the famous commissar order which was basically shoot them on the spot or or get from them any information you can before killing them and that continued throughout the war one of the things because we were talking at at the the top of this podcast about what I say to students and, and and even audiences at festivals it is hard there's a very western approach sometimes to think if you're if you're looking, if you're telling the story of this, this army that's, that's mar- thousands of miles away from home, on the Volga, surrounded by huge number, out- outnumbered by huge forces and slowly freezing and starving to death, it's a human reaction to feel sorry for them. And it's a human reaction, which I found with a lot of my audience and students that I talked to, to want to know more about what the Germans were doing at Stalingrad rather than the Soviets. And a little bit of what's going on right now plays to that story, too, as in who cares about what they were doing. But as I've said to a lot of them, is you've got to remember, you know, the Sixth Army, yes, it was heroically, in some terms you could say heroically, destroyed at Stalingrad. But it was still an army that had quite willingly uh, helped logistically facilitate, for instance, the Holocaust. And a lot of it's, the, the victims of the Holocaust were trucked to their final destination by trucks of the Wehrmacht or were corralled or, or driven like cattle by Wehrmacht troops. And so Manstein's part of that. And quite rightly, again, something I talk about as well is there was a pell-mell rush at the end of the war for senior German commanders that survived, like Manstein, to get their side of the story out while they could, and while no one had told any kind of official story, obviously you had the Nuremberg, I know we're jumping ahead here, but obviously you had the Nuremberg trials in '45, and you had various Nazis that were tried and found guilty and some were jailed for life, some were were, were hung. But officers like Manstein, one of, one of the first big autobiographical uh, pieces of work that came from any German commander in West Germany, because that's where he lived, that's where he ended up, uh, that was a bestseller in the early 50s was Manstein. And that set the template for a lot of how we think the, the, the fighting on the Eastern Front was fought is through his eyes. And as I said before, he was very much a politician, too. So he knew how to tell a good tale that put him in the best light and put others, whether they were political or army adversaries, Or fall guys. So Paulus at Stalingrad is pretty much a fall guy. And the way we view Paulus in the West is primarily through the works of people like Manstein and how he managed to spin the story that gave him the best light possible, but kind of, I suppose, condemned Paulus as an incompetent commander. So there's that kind of thing. But yes, getting back to your
1: thing. Yeah, there was no quarter given on both sides. But just I on am Manstein amazed. as well, I guess from that memoir, the whole myth of the Wehrmacht being, you know, the, the, they were the sort of um, the good bad guys, if, if you understand what I'm saying. And it yeah, was yeah, really yeah. only the SS that committed atrocities. That myth, which still in some quarters is prevalent, was... I suppose, begun by Manstein in his memoirs? He uh, he's he's
0: contributed. one of them. He's, yeah, he's one of them. I mean, if,
1: if, if your listeners want to go and check out
0: his book, it's called Lost Victories, and you can buy second-hand copies. I think you can even buy the... Uh, I think there are a few first editions on eBay as well, but I've got a copy of it. And so obviously, it's, it's completely interesting, but as a historian, you have to take a massive dose of salts with it and and look at all the other works that are around it and other commanders that were there at the time too. It can't be denied. It's not just the SS. You can't commit that many atrocities on on a vast military army that you're up against, but equally a vast civilian population. You can't do that just with the SS and kill millions upon millions of Soviet citizens and Soviet soldiers. That's got to be with the the complete combined strength of whatever armies you have at your disposal, and the vast bulk of German forces on the Eastern Front were Wehrmacht.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking at the numbers, there's something like, is it around 10 million in the Eastern Front killed? Soviet losses across the more, on the Soviet side.
0: It's about 27 million altogether, 11 million killed in, in the Red Army itself. I think they drafted something like across the war. It's like I was saying to you before, they rebuilt the Red Army five times, which is what, you know, blew Hitler's mind, I suppose, if he if he if he could see the, the statistics. But 34 million Soviets were drafted into the Red Army during the Second World War, which is just incredible. It's my it is mind mind-boggling. And, and like I said, the Ukrainian element of that is, is roughly about five million, just over five million. And I think it's one Seven million were killed. Yeah, it's just crazy, crazy numbers. I'm trying to think what else I can say to your uh, listeners about the, the losses. I mean,
1: I, I, uh, so, civilians, I was reading something like, have we already mentioned that? Civilian yeah, so it's, it's roughly about 16 million. Right. And they also uh,
0: lost on the, the European side of Russia, it's something like 78,000 villages, towns and cities completely destroyed. I mean, that's the whole infrastructure of the country wrecked, which they're still, I, I would imagine, you know, there are still areas there that still haven't been rebuilt. But again, it's when, I, when I'm talking about that to an audience, I, it's it's obviously very relevant in their mind's eye, because they're looking at what's being destroyed in the Ukraine at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's what I was just going to say, The the people in Britain are often accused of being obsessed with the Second World War. But but those numbers you've just given speak to why in the great patriotic war, as it's called in, yeah. some of the, other, I guess that speaks to why it's such a major event for them. Probably- oh, it's, the,
0: it's, it's the event. And the thing is, again, I've, I've talked about it in my book and I talk about it uh, when I'm giving talks. Putin is just like, I mean, obviously he is the bogeyman for now. He has been for years in my eyes anyway. And he's on his own trajectory of what's going to happen to him. But I think a Western audience has to realise just how strongly the vast bulk of Russians feel the way he does about the Second World War. They're obviously not homicidal maniacs like he is, but they do believe it. And and I, I think I've said this to you before, Ollie, about I've still got quite a few friends in Russia that I'm in contact with. I was speaking to them a couple of weekends ago because obviously the the, the May Day celebrations were coming up and that they've still been sending me photographs and things like that that they do on WhatsApp. But they might have their own opinions of Putin and also his regime, and they might be unhappy, like the vast bulk, I would imagine, of Russians are. But as they say to me, they've just got to keep their head down and get through. But they all believe that the Second World War was won on the Eastern Front, through their country or their the Soviet republics sacrifice. And when you look at the figures, it's, it's hard not to argue that. I mean, it's, you know, the, the German army on continental Europe was broken by Soviet forces. Can't be argued with I mean, it's, it's there for all to see.
1: Ian, this has been fantastic, thank you very much. So the paperback, what, it's out already actually, isn't it? It's out on the, I think it's the 15th of June. 15th of June, great, now we can do a giveaway yep you said you had a few to give i can give away one to a someone who signs up to a five five copies being given away by ear and i actually i have listeners in samoa and (laughs) and peru but uk listeners um i i no I'll, i'll post them abroad i don't mind you haven't checked. You haven't checked
0: how much that will cost. I do. No, no, I do. It's about twenty quid a ton.
1: Oh, you don't want to do that.
0: I don't mind. No, it's good. It's good to promote the podcast. You've you've been really good promoting me. So I'm, well, I'm I'll
1: um, I'll tell you what, we can chip in on that. Okay, well, let's do it. Let's do it then. Uh, so for listeners to the podcast, and this will be for our most loyal listeners. If you email me, I'll give you the email address. It's history at aspectsofhistory.com. We're giving away five copies of signed copies. Are they, uh, Ian, are they paperback or hardback?
0: Paperback, but I'll sign and dedicate as requested.
1: Five copies of Ian's paperback, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, to listeners Five individual listeners email me at history at aspectsofhistory.com and we will have a signed and dedicated copy of Ian's book sent to you that Ian isn't Ian just so generous listeners Ian thank you <laughs> thank you so much for that it's been a wonderful wonderful uh, lesson on the eastern front and particularly Kursk and the and then all the um uh, horrors of the of the fighting there and so ian what are you working on at the moment i know you you had another book that you were you were thinking yeah, of
0: yeah. i'll be going to america uh in towards the autumn to do research followed by japan so that gives you a hint Ooh. and uh, it's, it's on the last year of the war Wonderful. i would i mean i would i would I, I love the eastern front i would love to do another book sometime soon but it's just uh, I was really lucky with the Stalingrad book to get access to the archives in Volgograd but I mean for any Western historian it's going to be really hard to get into Russia over the next few years I would expect so that that's the reason why that's been curtailed but I, I, I've got I'm really interested in certain elements of the pacific war so that's where my new book's going to be set, uh, set.
1: oh wonderful stuff I'm, I'm excited about that Ian thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Please do rate and review and do tell your friends. More to come and don't forget those listeners who want to take up today's offer. The first five I receive will get the generous gift from Ian McGregor. Until then, thank you and good night.